0: If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. We are continuing our journey through this letter, slowly but surely, and we get to an issue today uh, that Paul is addressing within the church in marriage and divorce. And if this is your first Sunday with us or you haven't been in some while, let me just re-catch you up here. Paul is addressing issues that are happening within the church. It's causing divisions within the church. And Paul, a few chapters ago, he has told us to flee sexual immorality and that there are those within the church that say, well, if we're to flee sexual immorality, maybe I'm supposed to flee all forms of relationship and maybe it'd be better that I divorce. And Paul is going to address this issue for us today on marriage and divorce. Now, I want to mention this, as soon as the word divorce is even said... I know that there is potential for us in this room that have old wounds or past hurt that can still feel very present in our life. And so as we work through this conversation with Paul on divorce, our understanding is that these emotions can still feel very raw. Maybe you have been recently divorced. Maybe there's been a divorce in your past that is coming up into the present. Maybe you're considering today if divorce should be an option for you. And Paul is going to address these issues for us today. Everyone in this room has been affected by marriage. Whether it's your parents' marriage or your own marriage, whether that marriage has gone great or whether that marriage has ended poorly, we all have these issues of marriage that play deeply into who we are and how we process and engage others around us. And in a world that has been ravaged by sin, God's good design for marriage has been distorted in a variety of ways. So our desire as believers is to come under Jesus' lordship for what he says about marriage and how that should uh, move us as believers in Christ Jesus. And so naturally, that brings a lot of questions for us. Who should I marry? Uh, What if I'm married to an unbeliever? Is divorce permissible? If so, under what circumstances? So we're going to look at uh, verses 10 through 16 today and we're going to cover uh, we're going to cover a lot. It might seem like we're covering some old ground uh, in some previous sermons, but I think that's going to be helpful for us as we deal with the issue of divorce and how we handle that. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're in chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. It's on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. It says this. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's dive right into this by looking at verse 10, where Paul writes, not I but the Lord. What Paul is doing here is, I believe, he's directly quoting from what Jesus As previously said in the Bible in Matthew 19, now whether Paul had this gospel in his hand that he was reading or these teachings had been passed down, we don't know. But I invite you to flip over to Matthew 19 because this is what Paul is referring to when he says, not I but the Lord, where Jesus is met with some Pharisees who are asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so they bring this question to Jesus, and as you get to Matthew 19, let's see how Jesus answers this question. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. It says this, And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he, Jesus, answered, Have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. What we see here uh, with Paul quoting Jesus is he brings us back to this issue of divorce. And we're wondering, is it lawful for us Is it permissible to get a divorce? And Jesus answers on the one case, if there is adultery, that is permissible. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say that it's required. You see, if there has been adultery or an affair within a relationship, that may lead to a divorce, But the power of the gospel is that there can be forgiveness even in the midst of serious and grievous sin. Does that mean it is always the case? No, sometimes it's not. But it does not mean that it's required, but it is permissible. And we've talked a lot about marriage and relationships over the past few Sundays, and I think that we need to drill back down again why this is such a case for Jesus, why it seems like Jesus provides only this narrow lane for divorce and adultery. If you'll remember, uh, we went all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, where we saw that God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What this means is that as we have been created, we did not pop into existence from some primordial goo. We were created by the creator and king of the universe. He has ordained and given us, made us in his image. And it's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. But do you remember what happens in the creation account? That it's not good for man to be alone that God says this is not good, and so he creates woman to come alongside. And we see three things that happens in this creation account by God that we have been created for his purpose. The marriage relationship, it bears God's image to the world. When we love one another, we have two image bearers coming together. You can be an image bearer separate from marriage. You, You image God to the world, but as a married couple, you also bear God's image to the world. Second, what marriage allows us to do is to participate, cultivate, and continue in the creation process with God. God gave man uh, the ability to co rule alongside with him and to continue on in the creation process. What a wonderful and beautiful thing that God has designed. God created the world, and then he brings man and woman and says, Let us go, therefore, and create, multiply, be fruitful. Fill the earth with his goodness and glory. He allows us to participate alongside that. And then lastly, to enjoy God in his good creation. So what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 19 is that someone is coming alongside and they are ripping apart God's good design. What God has joined together, there is something that is separating this. What God has created for us to be a good thing that we are to delight in that unifies us it has been separated by adultery and Jesus says that's permissible by divorce divorce is permissible in this situation we see that marriage is sacred and we are to protect it but when that sacred union is broken Jesus allows he gives permission for divorce. It's permissible for divorce and adultery. Second, we see that marriage is a symbol, that it reflects Christ in his church. We saw a few weeks ago that marriage is sacred. It's a symbol. Uh, Ephesians 5.30 says, we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. In other ways, in another way, what Paul is saying is that your marriage to your spouse, it represents the love of Christ for his bride, for his church. And that is what our marriage is supposed to imitate and reflect. It's a symbol of Christ's love. Marriage is prescribed in the Bible as a way of saying, I see all of your imperfections, and I am still completely, exclusively, and permanently committed to you. In the same way that Jesus has seen us in our imperfections and that he's committed to us, so committed that he goes to the cross. We see uh, in Matthew 19 that sin breaks marriage. We can ask, what's the cause of divorce? And we can boil it down to all a sort of different things. We can say, well, it's communication issues, or "You know, we really didn't connect on this personal level, or it's something financial, whatever it may be. But the root of the issue of divorce is sin. Jesus says it's the hardness of heart that you look for this certificate of divorce. Now, this isn't to make light of issue. This isn't to say this is like... There are different circumstances and situations that arise, and it's not really difficult. But we can boil it down to one thing, that there is sin in our hearts. So we saw the first ground for divorce is adultery. But when we get to second, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we see a second reason for divorce, and that's abandonment. Paul says this in uh, verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... So what this means here is not that Paul is saying this isn't authoritative, this isn't Scripture. What Paul is doing is he is interpreting Scripture and applying it to this case. Paul is taking something that has not been spelled out like uh, adultery and divorce, he's applying this principle to this case, and he is interpreting it to say this, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. This has probably happened within the church where two unbelievers have become Christians or two married people. One has become a Christian and they've joined the church. And so they're now wondering, is my allegiance to the church more important to my spouse and should I divorce? How should I handle this? And Paul says, no, 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 no. If your unbelieving spouse consents to live with you, live with them. And he goes on to later to say that you may save your spouse through the gospel witness of your life and the love for them and how you live your life. But Paul also says this, that if an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife, they look at their now-believing spouse and say, no, I want none of this, and they leave, Paul says that's okay. They've abandoned the relationship. Now, this might happen... In the course of a church fellowship or a gathering of believers where it seems like there are two believing spouses, but one is operating in a manner that shows that they aren't repentant, and they have unbelief in their heart, and they abandon their spouse. I believe that Paul is saying that now both adultery and abandonment are grounds for divorce. Or it allows divorce to be permissible. Now, it's important to remember that we don't know all the details and circumstances that Paul is responding to in this letter. And this question and answer can get nuanced in a lot of different ways. Um, When it comes to an abandonment by a spouse, what do you do with children, property, an unbelieving spouse takes all of this then. Uh, We have to still deal with these situations carefully. But Scripture gives us, the Lord gives us two grounds for divorce, adultery and abandonment. Now, although it's not clearly stated in Scripture, uh, as Paul will say, this is not the Lord speaking, or not Paul speaking, but now John, I believe that there's a third ground for divorce, and that would be abuse. If you are in a marriage relationship, where you are suffering physical abuse at the hand of your spouse, I want you to hear God hates what is happening to you. God hates what's happening to you. If you know of someone that is, is going through physical abuse, you are okay to, and you are rightfully so, to go and seek relief from danger. No spouse or child should endure destructive, Controlling, expletive, oppressive, forceful domination, especially that that jeopardizes your safety or well-being. God hates this. So if you are in a relationship where you are are being physically um, and maybe even sometimes emotionally manipulated and domineered over, you, I believe you are okay to seek refuge for that. And if you are in that, and you need the counsel of the church or the elders, please come and see this. I don't believe this is the case for us, but if you are in this room, and you are the one that is abusing your spouse, hear this from the Lord very clearly. Repent. Abandon this lifestyle go quickly to the cross seek help seek refuge uh, this is a very serious matter if you are living in a constant pattern where you are practicing abuse to your spouse or your children it uh, the lord will not look kindly on that i believe and if you are continuing in that you are showing a state of unrepentance that would question whether you have come under the lordship of Jesus Christ or not. So we see, I believe in this passage, three reasons, three permissible ways that we could seek either divorce or separation for our safety. And it's the three A's, adultery, abandonment, or abuse. Now I want to offer some reflections on this passage. Because when we read this passage, um, we can want Paul to go a little bit further. We, we want Paul to tell us a little bit more. We, we want to be able to put in our circumstances and our situations, well, what about this issue with our marriage? Because Paul says these are the reasons that are permissible for divorce in a marriage. But that doesn't instantly mean that your marriage is easy and going great and simple and lighthearted and you're loving it. So let's look at some reflections that we've learned from 1 Corinthians and how we might be able to apply these things to our marriage. The first thing is this, that we've said earlier, God has created marriage to be good, but in a sinful and broken world, marriages break. For those who have experienced divorce up close, whether personally being divorced or your parents being divorced and you're affected by that, I know that there is deep hurt um, that those who might not have been divorced can't fully comprehend. But there is one who does, and that's Jesus. Jesus, he sees you, he hears you, he invites you to himself, and here's what that means. That even if your marriage covenant was broken in the past, whether it was by a permissible Uh, way of it being broken in scripture or not. The good news of the gospel is that the ultimate covenant with Christ and his bride is fully intact. He is always faithful. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Go to him. The second, the life and cross of Christ was not a moment of current love but the promise of future faithfulness. When you stood at the altar and you held your spouse's hand in your hand and you gave them the I do's, you gave them that I promise to love and cherish in sickness and in health and all of these things that you've promised to do, what that is a commitment and a promise of, it it is not only a promise of current love, but it is a promise of future commitment to that spouse. When you stand before the altar, before your spouse, you are promising that the, uh, the love that I have for you is going to make me committed to you 30 years from now. Now, this does not mean that there might be the same butterflies always or whatever that might be, but it is a promise that you will be committed to your spouse. If you have been divorced uh, for a biblical reason and you're now single... Rest in Jesus in your singleness or in a future marriage. The Lord has said that it is okay to get remarried in this case. If you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and single, if you're divorced for an unbiblical reason and single, repent and rely on Jesus to glorify God in your singleness. Repent of your sin before God and... uh, possibly to a former spouse. If there is an ability to pursue reconciliation, if that's possible, great. If not, then let the gospel give you a great hope that your single life can thrive for God and his glory and your goodness. And if you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and married, reflect the gospel in your current marriage. In other words, if you've been divorced in the past, for unbiblical reasons, this does not mean that it is the unpardonable sin. The Bible encourages you to repent and live genuinely before God and before your, current, your former spouse. At the same time, God does not tell us that we should break another marriage to divorce again and try and figure it out backwards. Does that make sense? So if you have been divorced and you find that it's not one of these reasons that God has laid out for us, adultery, abandonment, abuse, and you have been remarried, and Jesus says, if you remarried and it's not for adultery, I mean, not for that, you are in adultery, Jesus still has you. God does not command us to break this marriage and then try and go figure it out. Live faithfully in your current marriage. Consider Jesus's interaction with the woman at the well in John 4. If you are married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. And here's a very practical way that you can do this. Ask your spouse in what ways can I love you, and then do those things, and then repeat. Ask your spouse in what ways can I love you, and then do those things. So taking all of this from 1 Corinthians, I have two secrets to marriage. The first secret is this. The secret to marriage is the power of Jesus, his spirit, and the gospel. Through the gospel, we get both the power and the pattern for our marriage. Your horizontal relationship with your spouse is affected by your vertical relationship with God. Your horizontal relationship with your spouse is affected by your vertical relationship with God. We must continually be looking to and filled by the love of Christ for us. And when we see his love for us, it gives us the capacity to love others. The second secret to marriage, marriage isn't about you. Paul, in Ephesians 5, he gives us this passage about how it reflects the gospel and and King Jesus but before, of that, before that, Paul tells us to get rid of and then apply two things. First, what we get rid of. He says to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Then he tells us this, to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, uh, God, forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Marriage takes two sinful people and brings them together into close proximity and contact. Jessica has seen, hopefully, some of the the best of me, but she's also seen the worst of me. And marriage takes two people and commits them together. And the way that we do this is by committing our marriage and each other to God. The second is this, and I I want you to hear me in this. Your marriage must be the most important relationship that you have. On this side of eternity, uh, the most important human relationship, I'm I'm not talking about your relationship with Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm talking about the human interaction and relationship that we have. Your marriage must be the most important foundational relationship that you have. It's not my relationship with my children. It's not my relationship with my parents or my friends. My most important relationship is with Jessica. And no other person should get more love, energy, commitment than her by me. I should be committed to her in those ways. The second thing is this, is that the only person that you have control over is yourself. So my goal in marriage is is not to just change and mold Jessica into the ways that I want her to be. My... my, um, I believe commitment and calling from scripture is to follow Christ's example is to lay down my life for Jessica to walk in the way of love and to begin to serve my wife by helping her flourish in all ways. Now this doesn't make marriage instantly easier. If you're in this room and your marriage, I think we can married we can all confess that at times marriage is difficult. It's hard. And sometimes we might be like those Corinthians that have wondered, well, would it be easier to separate or to be married? Paul even says that those who are single have uh, this greater ability to go and do for the gospel. But here are a couple of confessions that we need to make first here, if we are married in this room. The first confession is this I am made in the image of God, my life has dignity, my life has value. My marriage is sacred and my marriage is a symbol of God's goodness and his love for us. And on that same hand, we must confess this. My spouse is made in the image of God. Their life has dignity and value. Their life is sacred and a symbol. All the love that we want Christ to show us on that day we stand before him is all the love that we should be working to display and show our spouse. The second confession is that I have no room to boast over my spouse. Their sin may look different than mine, but I still have to work through my own sinful tendencies. Maybe you know you have sin and your tendencies and your habits and the things that you do. Maybe conviction has waned a little bit. Maybe you are feeling this pressure, this desire, that it would just be easier if we were separated. Let me tell you this the grass is always greener where you water it. So if you desire, maybe I should be separated from my spouse, or maybe it would just be better if we were different. If you water those feelings and the emotions, that grass will grow. Those desires in your heart will grow, and you will start to believe that that would be better. The grass that you should be watering is the one that lays down your life for your spouse. It is love and committed to them. And I have here uh, five symptoms of emotionally unhealthy marriages. Five symptoms of emotionally unhealthy marriages. And maybe you can look and see maybe where you might be one or two on this list. Now, let me confess this. As I wrote this list down, I saw myself a lot in here. So this isn't me saying like I have a perfect marriage, it's emotionally healthy, you should follow me. I believe these are things that we have been given by God that we should seek to do. So symptoms of emotionally unhealthy marriages. The first one is this is ignoring anger, sadness and fear. When we ignore our emotions, To the degree that we are unable to express and process our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God and to love our spouse. Let me say that again. To the the degree that we are unable to express and process our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God and love our spouse. Why? Because our emotional lives are God-given. It's an essential part of who we are. God has made us emotional beings. And even our emotions are that that should be processed in the light and lens of the gospel. The second symptom of an emotionally unhealthy marriage is covering up brokenness, weakness, and failure. The work of growing in Christ actually demands that we go back in order to break free from unhealthy and destructive patterns that prevent us from growing in him. Augustine says this, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? So when we continue to cover up our, our emotional uh, issues of anger, sadness, or fear, or the brokenness and weakness and failure in our own lives, when we don't deal with that, we are handicapping ourselves in the ability that we have to love our spouse. The third is this, denying the impact of the past on the present. One of the most important things um, that we can do in following Jesus is to invite him into our stories and our traumas so that they are integrated into our spirituality, our personal life, and our love for others. There is sin within you, but there is sin that's also happened to you from the time that you were young and growing up. And this sin that you've committed and this sin that's been committed to you, it has a way of shaping and molding us. And if we don't deal with those, if we don't process those through the gospel, if we deny the impact on the past on the present, then we handicap our ability to grow in our marriages. One thing, just personally, I'll get very... Uh, I, I, I see myself in the tendency... Um, to ignore the emotions that I'm feeling. Because I can over-spiritualize it to say, well, it's just better if I just cover it up, if I just don't deal with it and I just swallow it. That doesn't help, Jessica. It doesn't help us as we process uh, the things, or you know, the issues when, I'm, when we're working through things emotionally. I'm not helping her in that way, I'm robbing her in that way. So when we deny the impacts on the past on the present, when we deny things that, have happened maybe earlier in our marital lives that are now coming back up in our later lives, and we think, well, you should just get over it. You should just not deal with it. That was in the past. You forgave me of that. No, we can't deny the impact of the past on the present. We invite Jesus to come into all of us, and we are broken, frail people, and we need Jesus to intervene on our behalf. Fourth is to spiritualize away conflict. When there's conflict in in the marriage or when there's an argument, we can say, it's just the devil's out to get us. Mm. Or maybe it's just that we haven't dealt with the issues that we have. Maybe it's that we haven't repented of our sin. We can't spiritualize away our conflict. And the last one, and I think this is one of the most important ones. Symptoms of emotionally unhealthy marriages is a life without limits. We hear this uh, in maybe like uh, motivational speeches, man. Live your life to the fullest. Have no limits. Go all out. But it is a blessing on your life from God to have rhythm and routine, to have limit. It's a blessing to have limit in your life. Is your family going at such a speed and a pace that you do not have an emotional Uh, a relational capital to build with your spouse? Are you always at the ballpark? Are you always chasing kids? Have you enrolled in these different organizations? Is your week so full that the only time that you have with your spouse is to tell her or tell him good morning and good night, and then that's it? You need to put some limits on your life. You need to slow down. The greatest gift that you can give to your children is not the t-ball game. For, for me, it's not to raise Russell to be a great golfer. The greatest gift that I can give him is to love Jessica well and for Jessica to love me well. It's to provide for them a safe environment, to provide for them a rhythm and routine, to not run ourselves in the ground. This is difficult. It's difficult, but it's worth it. As we follow Jesus, as we lay down our lives to follow him, Uh, that we can now come together and work through these things. So here are three ways that we can work through uh, these emotionally unhealthy symptoms. The first one is this, that you should allow your spouse the freedom to say what they feel. You should allow your spouse the freedom to say what they are thinking and feeling in that moment. And maybe that feeling is a little off. Maybe they've interpreted a situation that's not right. But what you shouldn't do is just, whoa, wait, stop stop, 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 you got it wrong. It wasn't that. You're making too big of a deal out of it. Just no, 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 no. I meant this. You just felt that way. That's not right. No, 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 no. You need to give them the room to be able to say what they're feeling to help them process what they're feeling in that moment. They, that is a freedom you can give your spouse. And when they say they have felt this way, acknowledge that feeling as being real. Don't say, no, no, you're just wrong. I've got it right. No, acknowledge them in that way. The second freedom that you can give your spouse is the freedom to see them and hear them. When you allow your spouse to express what they are feeling, to be empathetic, instead of interrupting, it will create a bond for you. And then it creates the freedom to you, then to be able to say what you feel, to what you see, and what you're hearing. And then the last freedom is the freedom to ask. When we ask this question, how can I love you in this way? How can I serve you in this way? We need to have that freedom to come alongside our spouse and love them in that way. Do not expect drastic changes overnight. Most changes come slow. Small increments over time extend grace to your spouse. Do not ignore small changes in improvement. There was a study done in 2007 that says that it takes five encouragements to one negative comment. We are we are creatures that, that don't do well with criticism. So as the spouse, you don't want to be the person that is the most critical for them any given day. So the third confession. Uh, we're continuing on and this is the last one. So to go back, our first confession is we're made in the image of God, so is our spouse. The second confession, I have no room to boast over my spouse. Their sin may look different than mine, but I'm still sinful. The third confession and the last one is this, I am made in the image of God. I have been given dignity. Um, I, have, uh, I, I have, how do we say it? We are both sacred in that way. We are made in the image of God. But Jesus is the image of God. There's a difference. Do you see it? You're made in the image. Jesus is the image. And so as we, as a church, uh, those who are married in the church, look to have uh, relationships that are emotionally healthy, we look to the one who is God, who fills us with his love and gives us the capacity to love. Now, I know that we have said a lot today And one of the challenges for me is um, wanting to give you something in in bite-sized portions. But know this, listening to a sermon, a sermon's not going to change your marriage. You know, we could do 10 weeks on marriage here, and it may not help your marriage. What helps your marriage is a commitment to the gospel, to Jesus, and to each other and walking with him by his spirit, Paul tells us that we have the mind of Christ. Pray for each other, love each other, serve each other, and seek God in every aspect and moment of your life. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray um, that your gospel, that That the hope that we have in Christ, in you, Father, be a soothing balm um, to marriages that have been broken, uh, marriages that are currently broken, marriages that are working through it. Father, I pray that uh, our families can find comfort and joy in you in that way. Uh, Jesus, for those in the room who have been divorced, Father, I pray uh, that. It is not additional shame that they are feeling, uh, but Father, that that they are that they know that they are seen by you and that they're loved by you. And Father, that they can take all of their baggage, all that they have, to you, Father, and you take them in. Father, that there is nothing that they can. That we can bring to you that will surprise you, that will shock you, nothing that we can say that you'll be like, oh, that's too much. Father, you promise to forgive us of all of our transgressions and our sins if we come to you. So, Father, from this day forward, I pray that the people who are in this room that are married, Father, commit to their marriages in a way that relies on you and reflects your love for the church. Father, for those that are single in the church, Father, I pray uh, that they see their life is valuable, that marriage is not an identity for them, but Father, that you are. And Father, that you have called them, whether in their singleness or in their marriage, uh, to reflect your goodness and love for them. Father, Jesus, we need you. And I pray uh, that you draw close to us. Help us to draw close to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.